Remember that old movie called The Odd Couple with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau? Felix and Oscar. Felix Unger was the neurotic, neat guy. Oscar Madison was the fun-loving slob. They decided to live together and classic comedy ensued. When Jose Baez and Ron Sullivan teamed up, many thought of them as the odd couple. Baez came from the Miami Public Defender's Office. Ron Sullivan was a professor at Harvard Law School. They joined forces to try the Aaron Hernandez case, but they actually aren't an odd couple. They were a perfect match, two fighters and very skilled trial lawyers. And Aaron Hernandez case was the toughest case around. He had already been convicted of first degree murder. He was facing a second murder trial. Everyone thought he was guilty. No one thought it was a case that could be won. And this odd couple came together, which wasn't really odd, Jose Baez and Ron Sullivan. And you're gonna hear from Ron Sullivan next as to how they fought against all odds and won an impossible case. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and this is For the Defense. Well, today I am really excited. We have Professor Ron Sullivan from Harvard Law School. And Professor Sullivan is the faculty director of the Harvard Criminal Justice Institute of the Harvard Trial Advocacy Workshop. He teaches criminal law, criminal procedural trial practice. Um, But besides doing all of that, he's an actual trial lawyer. And that's why we're talking to him today Um, He tries cases all around the country, including the very fascinating Aaron Hernandez trial. And so we're going to talk about Aaron Hernandez. We're going to talk about trials in general. uh, And welcome to the show, Professor. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. So maybe we could just start off talking about, you know, how do you manage trials and your day job teaching? When you're in a trial, it's 24-7. You can't mess around. Yeah, it. Uh, the key is I just don't sleep much. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, it, it is a, uh, a, a balance. I tell you, I have to really, really carefully schedule uh, these cases around my academic calendar. So my uh, my first job is 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 teaching. So I I can't uh, take matters that interfere with with my teaching schedule. Um, as you point out, you can't always control that. But uh, so far, uh, uh, judges and, and my clients have been quite understanding. And if I say, hey, I need to push back the start of this for three weeks in order to accommodate the academic schedule. Uh, so far, so good. Everyone's been uh, mostly everyone has been accommodating. Uh, there's one that wasn't, but um, we may talk about that later. But other than that, it's mostly been true. So I imagine that you have to be really careful with the cases you take because you're balancing so much. And so when you get involved in a case like Aaron Hernandez, how, how do you decide that that's a case for you that you're going to take on such a, a massive uh, undertaking? Well, I so usually it is a, a matter that has uh, some sort of appeal in terms of an issue that I think is of national import. Uh, and I will take it on, uh, or a uh, client who is just deeply, deeply, deeply in need of, uh, of of assistance because everyone's running in the other direction. And that was uh, Aaron Hernandez, uh, particularly here in Boston, the Boston area. Uh, folks here are really, really serious about their sports and 
And when a sports icon um, is perceived to have done something bad, and you'll recall he had been uh, convicted already of the Odin Lloyd uh, murder, um, uh, he was sort of persona non grata uh, in these parts. So uh, it was particularly appealing uh, then for me uh, because I, I deeply be- believe when uh, people are, are 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 out on a figurative island and nobody will 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 represent them, then it's incumbent on, on good lawyers to step up and step in and and do the representation. So so that's uh, uh, a factor in the decision when I represented Aaron. It's interesting. You you know there were two trials obviously, and we should give a little background to our listeners about that. But at the first trial. He still had the support of the community. People were coming to the courthouse. People were supporting him. People were outside, you know, uh, cheering for him. He gets convicted at that first trial. And then it seemed, you know, really there was no one around um, at the second trial other than his wife sitting in the first row every day. I mean, what a difference between trial number one and trial number two. Yeah, hugely different. As as I mentioned, he was... uh a pariah by time uh, I took on the representation for for trial two, uh, had lost uh, m- most of his support. Uh, you, you're right. His uh, his wife, Shiana, was there uh, religiously. And there was a spattering of other uh, folk who would come. But but other than that, not many. And so when you get ready for trial number two, um, where do you go? You go meet with him in the jail and, and start to develop that kind of relationship with him just by meeting him at the jail, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. We had not met before. So uh, the very first meeting was in the jail. You know, it's not an ideal uh, place to to meet a client for the first time and, and start developing that attorney client relationship. But, you know, you you do what you, you, you have to do. So so met him in the jail and then we were uh, uh, able to start building a, a rapport from there. Uh, Jose Baez and I, I sh- should say, met him in the jail. Uh, he was my trial partner and we met uh, Aaron together. You know, my father was a lawyer and he did family law a lot of, he did some criminal, but he always told me the family clients that he visited, he, they saw him at, he saw them at their worst. They were ready to go to war. They weren't nice during the divorce. Criminal uh, law clients, typically when we see them, they're treating us really well. They need us. They, they're respectful. How was, how was Aaron with you all when you first met him? He was great. He was delightful, uh, respectful. The general proposition, though, is absolutely true. I know family lawyers, too, and they say, you know, it is much, much uh, worse doing family law than doing, you know, murders and, and, and mayhem cases and malicious disfigure, disfigurement. So, so you're not the first person I've heard that from. I think your father was right. Uh, but yes, he, he was incredibly uh, thankful, uh, respectful. Uh, but, but the, the, you know, the one thing I remember uh, when he first walked into the room is that, oh, this is what a professional athlete looks like. I mean, it just his, his presence and bearing was, uh, was, 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 was unique. Uh, and then he walked in and then flashed uh, the most radiant smile I think I've ever seen. And, uh, and from that point on, I mean, he was just really, really grateful that Jose and I were working with him. That's great. And, you know, you mentioned Jose. I know Jose back from the Miami days. Um, you guys seem like a really interesting trial couple. How did you hook up with Jose? Well, uh, we, we've had a number of successes across the country. And so that uh, 
So as trial partners, that relationship has, has gone well. And uh, we're very close friends uh, as a function of having worked together. I guess it could have gone in the other direction too. We could have started working together and hated each other, hated each other's guts, but, uh, but thankfully it, it went in the, in the correct direction. Um, so um, we got to know each other uh, because I invited uh, Jose to be a teaching faculty member at the Harvard Criminal Justice Institute, uh, or more precisely, the Trial Advocacy Workshop, uh, where I'm the, the faculty director. And it's a soup-to-nuts trial program, a three-week intensive program, you know, starting with client interview all the way up to jury trials, where I bus in uh, jurors uh, for, for the students to try a case. And I bring in about 75 lawyers and judges uh, over the three weeks uh, in one week stints. Uh, so I, I never met uh, Jose. Uh, I had seen his work from Casey Anthony and I just uh, called him up. And uh, one benefit um, of being at Harvard is uh, for whatever reason, everyone takes your call. So it's, uh, <laughs> that's right. That's a good thing. So, so he takes the call and uh, I, uh, I invite him uh, to become a faculty member. He came came up for uh, the first week of the program. Uh, we had a lot of similar interests. We had both uh, begun our careers as public defenders. Uh, I in the better public defender office in DC. Uh, he and uh, a good one, but not quite as, as I don't good know as about that. I may have to take you on about that, Professor. <laughs> I love it. We, uh, we tease each other constantly about that. Uh, but but in all seriousness, we we, we hit it off and uh, and then we started uh, trying cases together. Uh, and after we uh, won the Hernandez case, then uh, we sort of uh, became a really popular uh, team after that. That's really cool. And and I know you've tried cases all around and have developed this great trial partnership. It's hard to find a person that you can try cases with because. You are living with each other night and day, fighting, and um, it's hard to find a good match for a trial partner. Yeah, and and we're both type A personalities. Uh, you know, it's uh, so it's amazing that we've been able to uh, to do it. But but it's worked, and it's worked uh, marvelously. That's awesome. And and I wanted to ask you about the trial uh, program that you you lead and you teach. I get a lot of questions after these podcasts air from young lawyers saying, what should I read to become a better trial lawyer? What books, what, what's out there? What resources? Can you give any uh, recommendations since I got you for uh, young lawyers who are looking to become better trial lawyers? Well, for uh, young lawyers, uh, I would definitely uh, uh, brush up on uh, all the trial practice books you can find. Uh, Mao Wei has a zillion of them. Uh, everything from jury selection uh, through, um, you know, closing arguments. And they are, are great in terms of giving you uh, the, uh, the fundamentals and you can um, sort of uh, 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 get reacquainted uh, with these fundamentals. And for some, uh, for the first time, uh, sort of learn what the time-tested uh, fundamentals uh, are uh, Peter Murray has a wonderful uh, book uh, I use in my class, uh, Introduction to Trial Advocacy, or words to that effect. And, uh, and, and that's what I use. Um, and my internet is uh, doing something funny again. I hope you can still hear and see me. I got you still. So, so you know, let's get into the trial a little bit. Yep. To give some the folks a background, I mean, 
like we said before, Aaron Hernandez had already been convicted. He's coming into trial number two. His supposed friend, this guy, Alexander Bradley, is pointing the finger at him um, and saying that Hernandez shot two people and killed them and also shot his friend, Alexander Bradley. And so going in, do you, the strategy is let's point the finger at Bradley as the uh, bad actor in the case. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly part of it. And that was, uh, I think, accurate. Uh, when we read the discovery, though, we were uh, each almost instantly amazed at how little evidence uh, it was against uh, Aaron. Uh, and how the only person who presented evidence against Aaron was, you know, just happened to be uh, the guy that had the, the most to lose in, in, in the situation. So um, on the one, if you listen to the media or if you read the papers, you would have thought it was a slam dunk case. And we read the discovery. And if uh, his name had been, you know, Jose Hernandez instead of Aaron Hernandez, no way would they have even indicted that case. I mean, the evidence uh, we thought was was that slim. So we went into the case really confident that we would get an acquittal. The difficult part was that he had been convicted of a murder and everybody in the city knew it. And so would he actually get the presumption of innocence? That was the hard part. But in terms of evidence, it was precious little against him. You know, you mentioned celebrity and his name a lot of people out there think that if you have a celebrity name you get justice that you it's easier to get justice being a celebrity that the media gives you the benefit of the doubt the jury gives you the benefit of the doubt the judge gives you the benefit of the doubt i mean in a lot of these cases just the opposite is true it's absolutely just the opposite that may well have been the case in a bygone era but now uh you know when the media sort of gets its tentacles on a, a, a celebrity, I mean, they dig and push uh, and, you know, just expose every bad thing that the person's uh, ever done in life. Equally important when a celebrity is on the other side of the V, a defendant in a criminal case, the prosecutor's office really gears up. You get, I mean, they do everything um, uh, by the book, so to speak. Uh, you know, they do everything, the things that they never do in the majority of cases. They've got their best prosecutors, the best detectives, you know, they're taking DNA. I mean, all the stuff that you just never see in a run of a meal case. So it, it's really these days very tough going for a celebrity who finds himself or herself in, in, in trouble. And, 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 and that's one of the things, you know, uh, frankly, uh, uh, Jose and I have built an expertise around. You do have to think about these cases a little differently, I've learned. In fact, I might even teach a course on it one day because it's uh, it, it's it's quite an, 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 an interesting balance that you have to um, have when you're representing a, a celebrity. You shouldn't you shouldn't go into these cases cold. Would celebrity work for or against Aaron Hernandez? We'll find out in For the Defense next. As you can probably tell, I love trials and I love studying old trials. One of my favorite trials to read about is the Scopes Monkey Trial back in 1925. It pitted William Jennings Bryan, um, who was one of the all-time great orders back in the day. He was known as the great commoner. He was the secretary of state. He ran for president three times. 
and he was unfortunately anti-evolution and fighting this case against one of the greatest all-time lawyers, Clarence Darrow, who was going after Brian. It was a clash of the titans back in the day. Everybody wanted to know what happened and what was going on in this trial. And the press was covering it, and there were mixed press uh, messages about the case until Clarence Darrow called Brian to the stand. Can you imagine calling your opponent to the stand? And the judge wasn't going to hear of it. He wasn't going to allow it to happen. But Brian insisted he wanted to go toe-to-toe with Darrow and thought being called as a witness would allow him to debate Darrow and and win the day. And so I'm going to talk a little bit during these cut-ins about Darrow versus Brian in the Scopes Monkey trial. Before we do so, let's get back to Aaron Hernandez and Professor Sullivan next and for the defense. It's also interesting, you mentioned the prosecutor going the extra mile. In this case, it seems like they went a little overboard because they gave immunity, full immunity to a guy with a huge rap sheet, a guy who, um, you know, much worse position than Aaron Hernandez. And so they were really stretching, it seems like, to get your guy. A bad rap sheet and something that never got in evidence, unfortunately, is that uh, Bradley, on a prior occasion, had gotten into an argument with someone at a nightclub in nearby uh, Rhode Island, I believe it was. Maybe it was Connecticut. Um, went back to the car, got a gun and started shooting. So you had this guy. Holy cow. Yes. And the judge, for just a reason I'll never understand, never allowed us to present that uh, in, in evidence. So you've got, you, you've got a guy who uh, points a finger at Aaron, as you say, has this long rap sheet. He was a huge, significant, profitable uh, drug dealer for years before he went to jail. And in order for their theory to make, make sense, uh, Bradley told them that they were driving and Aaron had to use, you know, the little button on the side of your seat and make the seat go way back as he reached over uh, the car out the driver's side window to shoot these shots. And, um, you know, I mean, that's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, it really doesn't make any sense. What, one of the things that really interested me in reviewing this case and going back and looking at it was this witness also claims he was shot by your guy. Right. Um, that Aaron Hernandez shot him and left him for dead. Um, what was the, I didn't see much about the defense on that. Did you all um, say that was just made up? He was obviously shot in the head. Did you say he was shot by someone else or what was, what happened there? Yeah, he was shot by someone else. It was a drug deal gone bad. Uh, you real, I mean, the jury realized that, that Bradley was a, a, a drug dealer. That was his profession and that it was a drug deal gone bad. And if you look at the early uh, correspondence before, you know, immunity uh, came, Bradley was very clear that it was not uh, Aaron Hernandez. It was only after, um, you know, forms of immunity got got waved around. And uh, the government, I think they did go overboard. They immunized uh, almost uh, everybody. And and this was about five or six years ago, uh, this case, uh, almost seven years ago. Um, back when the uh, the old Oprah Winfrey show 
was still very present in people's minds. And, uh, you know, at one point, um, uh, uh, Jose called the prosecutor, the, the Oprah Winfrey of uh, immunity. Uh, you get immunity and you get immunity and you get immunity. And those people uh, uh, familiar with Oprah remember her big giveaways where she would say, you get it, you get it, you get it. And, uh, and the jury got it because it was just like. Did they like you know, that? Did they, they respond? Speak? This big giveaway. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I know, too, you had to get over this hurdle, as you said, about Aaron having been convicted at trial number one. When you do voir dire, first of all, in Massachusetts, do you get a lot of attorney conducted voir dire? Uh, well, we certainly did in, in this case. Uh, the, the judge, uh, to his credit, uh, gave us a great uh, voir dire. I mean, the judge recognized I think that this would be one area particularly susceptible to appeal uh, because of the pretrial publicity. So uh, we got a great voir dire and um, your, your question, uh, that's the absolute right, right question. And as you know, a trial lawyer yourself, you zero down into it. That's precisely where we started trying the case in, in voir dire. Uh, we figured everyone would know um, or another juror at some point would tell them if they if they didn't know. And uh, so right then, um, you know, we start drilling down on areas like, uh, you know, if, if the judge orders you to put something aside and you take an oath and you swear that you will not use something in your consideration, are you able to do this? Uh, and, you know, and, and these sorts of questions for people who told us they knew and, you know, and we uh, would would pepper them with 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 very specific uh, uh, questions. Are you sure you can put that aside? Wouldn't that bother you? And, you know, we would go back and forth and, and hopefully attempt to weed out uh, people who were going to be overly biased and keep in people who said that they would make an effort to be fair. And then at the end, right, you say something like, we you know, we chose you. We chose you because you swore to us that you could try this case free of any bias, free of anything you heard on television, free of anything you read in the newspaper. And we trusted you on that. We know you can do it. And we know that you're going to do it. Right. And so, you know, it's like the seamless thing from for Dyer all the way to the end where where, where you do that. And uh, it um, because you, you can't put your head in the sand and pretend that they don't know that, that that's the worst thing to do. Right. And it's amazing because, like you said, when somebody has a prior like that, everybody and everybody knows it and he's a celebrity, um, as much as you can tell the jurors to put it out of your mind, it's in their mind. So you have to talk about it. Um, And the other thing you mentioned, Professor, is the media having already convicted your client. In a lot of these cases, again, when you're dealing with celebrities, I, I hate to throw around fake news. It's a term that's thrown around too much now. But in a lot of these celebrity trials, what I'm hearing from the folks that I'm interviewing is that the media is quick to convict before they've even seen the discovery or heard the evidence. Uh, yes. And it, it was amazing here in that respect. And the real time uh, coverage was just as amazing. So one of the things in that case, uh, we were sure that we had won just about every day. Uh, so w- one of the ways uh, Jose and I connect is that we both have this similar uh, theory that you try to win every day at trial. You try to come out you know, every day. And, mm-hmm. and, and with the exception of one or two days uh, that were probably a tie, 
we were sure we'd won every day. So we we'd go in there and just do a bang up job and then see the evening news and they pick out some odd little detail suggestive of guilt and run with it. And we would think, are you watching the same trial that we're watching? It's unbelievable. And so, you know, yeah, it's it's frustrating. Um, but I guess you guys got the last lap. No, no, definitely. And, and you know, we were and we were pretty we were really, really confident. Uh, and that's hard to say in a homicide case. But we I'd say so. Uh, yeah, we really thought that uh, the evidence came in um, uh, really, really well, um, uh, despite a few just awful uh, rulings, um, one of which, and a lot of people don't know. So the government's theory was that uh, Aaron spilled a drink on somebody and oh, uh, somebody spilled a drink on Aaron. I'm sorry. And uh, and Aaron got really angry. And followed those guys and shot them. And this is what Bradley fed the the the, the government. Um, we found a guy. He was a serviceman uh, who said that that summer in one of those theater district nightclubs, he accidentally spilled a drink on Aaron Hernandez, who was wearing a white T-shirt. And Aaron said, "Hey, man, that's okay," and went and bought this guy a drink. Now, the guy was overseas uh, somewhere in, in active duty, and uh, the, uh, the, the court just would not enforce a subpoena uh, for us to get him to testify hmm. in, in video. So what happened, um, Bradley took an actual real-life circumstance. Yes, a guy did uh, spill a drink on Aaron, but the result of that thing was 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 different. Now, uh, you know, Aaron bought the guy a drink and said, you know, it's it's all good. Now, what um, you know, I, I, so I guess the government could have said, oh, that was another guy uh, in another day. But what's the likelihood of that 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 happening? Right. Yeah, you know, right. And so and so we think if that evidence had come in, the jury would have come back even quicker. With let me uh, ask you, why guilty. why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't that guy come voluntarily and testify? Uh, he just he wouldn't. I, I don't know. I mean, That's, to this day, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and partly it may have been because of the, you know, no one wanted to be perceived as helping Aaron because by that time he was Aaron Pariah, not Aaron, the football star. So that may have been it. But I but I don't know. He he didn't tell us, didn't have to tell us, but he 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 did not voluntarily consent to the subpoena and and the court uh, would not enforce it. What a shame. Um, you know, you mentioned the Oprah um shtick that that Jose did. And I saw some of his opening where, you know, he really went after Bradley and said, look, if Aaron wanted to to deal with Bradley, he's this athlete. Bradley's five, seven. He didn't need a gun. He could have gone and dealt with him. I, I love that part of Jose's opening and the Oprah part that you mentioned. And we're, we'll talk about the cross in a second. But my question is a lot of the other um, people who are watching the podcast and get back to me say, you know, are you born a trial lawyer or is it something you can learn and develop? I mean, is that, you know, things like doing the Oprah and, and that opening with Jose and how you talked about Vaudier, are those things that we just naturally have or you can learn over time? I think um, I, I think both. But I'm going to focus on that you can learn over time. And that's what I believe. And that's what I I teach. Now, clearly, some people are born with, a, you know, uh, you know, uh, one of these stentorian voices that just command every courtroom and so forth. And, and that's great, you know, but a lot of people aren't. And you and I know trial lawyers who 
speak barely above a whisper. Mm-hmm. You know, wear a pair of glasses, talk very slowly, but they too can command the attention of their audience because they have learned the craft. So what I just did there was uh, I changed the pace of my voice. I emphasize things by spacing between my words. These are all parts of the craft that you can teach. And, you know, it's, it's actually what I do teach at, at, at Harvard. So people from all walks of life can be really outstanding trial lawyers if you put the time into it. And some people have great gifts and they, you know, make start, you know, a little bit, you know, up, right? Uh, you know, LeBron James was was born to be 6'9 and you know, 250 or do about that. But, you know, look, uh, Isaiah Thomas uh, is one of the greatest of all time. It, see, he was 6'1". And I mean, the Isaiah Thomas of my era. Uh, I remember. The other <laughs> was very, is, is a great player as well. Um, but, uh, so, but, you know, so you can, you, you take what you've got and you can maximize it uh, in, in a way. So everyone can use their particular skill set. I bet you weren't expecting an Isaiah Thomas reference in this podcast. Don't worry, we'll get back to the trial and for the defense next. So I don't know whether Clarence Darrow or William Jennings Bryan were born great trial lawyers or great orders or whether they just worked and worked and worked at it. But the spectacle of them going back and forth was pretty amazing. When you go back and look at these transcripts, it just jumps off the page. When Brian took the stand, Darrow began with a very simple and quiet question. You have been given considerable study to the Bible, haven't you, Mr. Brian? Brian said, yes, I have. I have studied the Bible for about 50 years. And then Darrow just attacked him. He asked him about the whale swallowing Jonah, Joshua making the sun stand still, Noah and the great flood the temptation of Adam in the Garden of Eden, the creation according to Genesis. Darrow even got Brian to finally admit that not everything in the Bible should be taken literally. So Darrow did not give up at that point because he smelled blood in the water. He asked Brian whether the earth was created in six days and were those six days 24-hour days. Brian answered my impressions that they were periods. And so Darrow at this point had really shown that Bryant did not interpret the Bible literally. And even though Bryant began his testimony calmly, he really began to stumble after Darrow continued to prod him. At one point he said, I do not think about the things I don't think about. And Darrow followed up, do you think about the things you do think about? And everybody started laughing. It just shows how important it is to listen during cross-examination to the answers and then to keep on, not to just follow an outline. And Darrow was such an expert at that. You'll see how Baez and Sullivan were experts at it in this Aaron Hernandez case as they listen to the witnesses' answers and go after him. And we'll get back to the Scopes Monkey trial at the next cut-in for the defense. Next. When you took on this case, did you get the backlash uh, that you've gotten for other cases? I know in the Harvey Weinstein case, obviously that that's well documented how how horrible uh, you were treated from from all different kinds of people. Um, how about in this case, were you getting a lot of backlash? No, not 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 at all, not not at all. Uh, it was uh, 
uh, I actually got no backlash. Uh, and, you know, people came uh, with uh, uh, people uh, came to court, uh, students and, and, and the like, uh, to see it. Uh, the, uh, you know, the Harvey Weinstein thing was a uh, loud minority of, of undergrads and uh, complete, uh, utter uh, shameful cowardice from uh, 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 Dean Gay and Dean Karana at Harvard College, who uh, simply couldn't tell 19-year-olds that you may have something to learn about open and free uh, dialogue. And it was just a, a craven sort of uh, capitulation by uh, uh, Claudine Gay and Rakesh Karana to the lowest uh, common denominator. I mean, that's what happened with, with Harvey, but, uh, but with Aaron, I mean, just, just nothing. Uh, uh, or, you know, cases uh, before then or, or since then, uh, there's been uh, nothing. So, Did you have your students work on the case with you at all? Did, did some yes. of the students get a chance to do that? Yeah, absolutely. For, for all of my cases, I have students uh, uh, work on them. I, I was uh, always fascinated uh, well before I came to law school by this uh, figure I'd heard about uh, called uh, Alan Dershowitz, who would have uh, kids, young people over you know, his home working on these appeals and, and, and everything. And that was kind of my stylized notion. So by the time I started my career as a professor at Yale, I, uh, I, I included students in all of my outside work. And, and when I came over to Harvard, I, I did the same thing. So I was in Dershowitz's class during the OJ trial. Oh my goodness. Uh, and, yeah. and so I was there when he was coming in and talking about uh, trial and, and class. And we have him coming up on the podcast as well. So he's going to talk about OJ and how the verdict and everything during during law school, it was an amazing reaction. Half the students cheered and half the students uh, were shocked and upset uh, yes. at that verdict. It was it was amazing. Well, you remember the split screens the TV would do around the country. That was uh, that was something else. Yeah, it really was. Let, let me ask you the text messages you mentioned getting from Bradley, how early on the text messages didn't suggest Aaron at all. And then he gets immunity. And then all of a sudden the text messages shift. Were those text messages provided in discovery or did you have to fight about getting them? How did you get his text messages? No, we um, uh, did not have very many discovery uh, battles. Uh, that is one of the uh, shining moments of, of, of this case. The, the prosecutorial uh, team um, said uh, from the beginning that, you know, we're going to play fair and let the chips fall where they may. And they, uh, for the most part, just gave us uh, everything. So for, you know, 99.9% of the homicide cases I try, I mean, it's just vicious, nasty battles about discovery. I just, that's, 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 that's half the game. Uh, here, you know, some minor things here or there, but, but nothing uh, significant. Uh, we had, we were able to try a case and it was a well-tried case. Uh, I hats off to the prosecution team as well. They, they did uh, a really uh, stand-up job in that case. So, Professor, one of the main text messages, and in getting ready for this interview, I, I watched a bunch of the trial, and one of the text messages that comes up over and over and over again is that text he sends to his lawyer, that Bradley sends to his lawyer, yes. where he talks about perjury, and am I going to get in trouble for perjury if I, you know, if I testify like this? And all I could think about was that was a text message to his lawyer. Right. 
So how did you get a text message from him? First, can you tell us about that text message, why it was so significant and how you got it? Well, uh, it, so, so the text message, if, you, if you've described it well, he was saying, you know, will I get in trouble uh, if I perjure myself uh, about essentially about Aaron's involvement and in, 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 in all of this? Because before, recall, he had said that, you know, Aaron was not uh, involved in any way. So Bradley was concerned that he'd get up there and perjure himself uh, about Aaron's in, involvement. And we got it uh, through um, uh, we got it through normal discovery. I suppose your question is, uh, why was that not uh, uh, privileged? I don't recall us having to fight about that, uh, that it came in the in, in the normal uh, uh, chorus, um, but uh, it would not have been privilege because it would have been used for the purposes uh, of, of impeachment. And I mean, that would have been our, our legal theory as to why this wasn't an attorney-client uh, privilege. And um, uh, Bradley was immunized uh, uh, anyway. So, uh, you know, there, there was no harm uh, to it coming in. But that's one we didn't have to fight about anyway. A lot of times when these witnesses get immunity, at least in federal court, the prosecutor insists that they give over their phone and their computer so they can review everything. Um, and an immunized witness has to sort of open up and say, here's everything right. I got. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, I'm sure how the, the government got it. So uh, under a n- number of theories, I mean, it's Brady. Uh, it, I mean, it would have, uh, we had a right to it. And uh, I guess Pat figured uh, he didn't want to fight about it. And, uh, to his credit, that's the prosecutor. Uh, he, 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 he gave us everything. So we, we, we really didn't, uh, we fought about admissibility, right. but, but, but everything was on the table. So I saw at the first trial, the state called Bill Belichick and, and um, I'm sorry, the state called uh, Robert Kraft at the first trial. And, and Kraft was actually a prosecution witness because it was odd how Aaron Hernandez called him about the timeline. But Bill Belichick was a was listed for you guys as a potential witness. You end up not calling him. What happened there? You guys were just feeling confident and didn't need him, or what happened with Belichick? Yeah, that was it. We were feeling really confident, and I know that sounds surprising uh, yeah. in, a, in a homicide case of this sort. But it's the sort of thing where, and 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 you know this, uh, you know, the defense can very easily uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And we thought we had this thing won. And the more you start opening doors, sometimes the worse it could get. And, you know, what we had with uh, Bill Belichick would have been relatively minor, uh, you know, a, a detail here or there. Uh, it, but, you know, but, but look, nothing that we couldn't have asked the jury to draw reasonable inferences about. So we decided to keep it really simple and uh, go to the jury because we didn't think that they had proven uh, a case anywhere close to beyond a reasonable doubt. Was the team, the organization supportive by the time of the second trial or because he was convicted, they were sort of standoffish at this point? Uh, uh, Standoffish would be a a, a wonderfully rich euphemism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I imagine so. Um, One of the things that also jumped out at me from the trial professor is you and the judge going at it. Yes. Um, and I loved it. I love seeing you fight with the judge and stand up for your client. And, you know, one of the places it came up was 
at the time of deliberations. And so if I can just set the stage and tell me a little about it. Right. In Massachusetts, there's this crazy rule. I had never seen this before where the judge can pick the four person. Right. Right. And, and you know, the, the jury is a very diverse jury, uh, which is great for you. And he ends up picking a, a white woman for the four person. And why don't you take it from there and what happens and, and how you deal with that? Well, the uh, y- yes. Yeah, so 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 there is this very odd rule in Massachusetts. And for your uh, listener slash uh, viewers, uh, uh, usually it's done in one of two ways. Uh, one, uh, the four person is whoever happens to be in a pre-assigned seat, uh, seat 12, seat six, seat one. There's some courtroom rule everyone knows in advance, and 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 that's the four person. And in other places, the minority rule is you kind of pick a number out of a hat. Uh, that's the four person. Um, now, when you don't do any of those, uh, the jurors themselves go inside, go to the back, and they decide their own four person. But in terms of court involvement, it's it, when the court decides, it's usually uh, randomized in, in the two ways that I, I described. So, but in Massachusetts, yes, the, uh, the court can decide uh, the four person. And the difficulty was that the uh, court and the person whom uh, he chose as the four person uh, had this consistent nonverbal communication going on uh, every day. Uh, the, and, you know, and the, the, cam- the trial was on camera, uh, which is a, it was a good thing. And you could see the judge. Um, so, you know, every morning after a certain point, he would come in, turn to his left and <laughs> do one of these smiles right. and nods to a particular juror who was sitting in the first seat and and she would smile and nod back and and you know Jose and I were sitting there like you know uh, you know I I don't you know there, there's nothing wrong with it per se but we didn't like it we we absolutely didn't like it that just that level of uh uh, uh warmth Right. Uh, seemed uh, problematic. And, and and the reason lawyers don't like that is because to the degree that the judge, even unconsciously, uh, sort of seems to favor one side or another, one argument or another, uh, you don't want that impacting the, 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 the jury. So, um, uh, so the judge uh, 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 chose her uh, we raised uh, an objection. And then the judge said something, and that's what really uh, started the very heated back and forth between the court and I, that uh, that it, this is a person who uh, obviously listened, paid attention, and uh, understood the, the evidence. And I found that offensive to the majority minority uh uh, jury uh, pool. So it was a mainly minority jury pool. And for this judge to say that the, you know, this one out of maybe two um, white women was the only one who was paying attention and who clearly understood the uh, evidence. Uh, I thought it was uh, not only on a moral register offensive to the black and brown uh, women on that jury, but as a constitutional matter that uh, it violated uh, equal protection because uh, my client has a right under the equal protection clause for all of his jurors to be treated uh, fairly and equally and uh, no one um, uh, sort of be 
picked out and elevated, uh, prejudicing uh, the, the the others. And so we, um, uh, you know, that was sort of the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and a lot came out, if, if you've listened to it, uh, about the court's rulings, about the way in which the court spoke to the defense as opposed right. to the way the court spoke to the prosecution and um, and and uh, and to uh, the judge's credit uh, after that, it was extraordinarily heated uh, after that uh, he uh, uh, came back and stopped uh, cutting us off and that sort of thing. Um, I doubt he was really listening uh, to the arguments, but at least as a formal matter, he stopped being rude. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I knew that he was not going to give us any rulings. And we know that going in in the defense that he's going to rule with the prosecution, the supermajority of the time. But what I didn't want and had to stop was him belittling uh, the defense in front of the jury and making snide comments and that sort of thing. That had to stop. Well, you said what we all want to say so often to judges is, you know, when when he uh, when he asked you if you were done and you said, you know, if you're going to if you're going to cut me off. Yeah, I wish, you, you know, you don't cut the prosecutors off when when they're arguing. And, you know, I just I, I cheered when you said it, because so often judges don't they don't even realize um, how they're treating the defense in front of the jurors um, as compared to the prosecution. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's the key. They really don't realize it. It's an unconscious um, uh, bias. And, uh, and, and, and it's true. They sit and listen and are polite and so forth. And you say two or three words and they're chopping your, your, your head off. Now I, I have the benefit of not being a repeat actor in the courts where I, I, I practice. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can take a little more latitude. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I got calls from across the country. Wow. I wish I could have said that, but but, you know, you know that they'll take it out on you in the next case if uh, if uh, if you're sort of a repeat actor in that in that court. But it is freeing. Uh, to be, it's freeing to be able to try cases in, in other parts. I try cases outside of Miami as well. And you know that you're going there once and you won't appear in front of that judge probably ever again. So there is some freedom in doing that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's almost time for the verdict in for the defense. Next. So Darrow had crushed Brian on the stand. He had bested this orator, this man who is known for defending the Bible and attacking evolution. And it was so bad that the judge at the end of the day said that he was not going to permit Brian to retake the stand tomorrow and that the entire testimony was stricken from the record. It was time for closing and Darrow actually asked the jury to find his client guilty so that he could appeal up to the Tennessee Supreme Court. And we know what happened after that. Darrow won the case and evolution was permitted to be taught in schools. The crazy thing is that Brian was so devastated by the cross and the press coverage of the cross. He died five days after the trial ended and many said he died as a direct result of what had happened in the courtroom and his humiliation. While that's not clear, Darrow's legend grew, and you'll hear in the next segment how Professor Sullivan and Jose Baez 
win this Aaron Hernandez case and how their legend has grown in For the Defense next. You know, one of the other things about picking the four person that I thought was interesting, this crazy rule in Massachusetts, is you don't deselect the alternates until after the four person is picked. So what the judge is doing is ensuring that that one juror gets to stay on. And he had told, I think you made this point, uh, he had told everybody, you all have an equal shot at being on the jury. But he right. changed that by picking the four person. Yes. Um, and, and so everybody had a little less of a shot because she was locked in. You're right. Actually, I made that argument. I thought it was a good one. Uh, but but that's absolutely right. He said it. And again, it was on tape uh, that you ought to have an equal shot. And that, that wasn't uh, true. And the other odd Massachusetts thing in terms when they did get around to selecting the uh, the uh, alternates, uh, they put it in a wheel and they pull out numbers and nobody gets to see it except the courtroom clerk and the judge. And they tell us it's number four and number seven. But unlike anything else in any courtroom where transparency is the primary value, you know, I don't know uh, to this day uh, what numbers were actually on there. I do know that the juror we liked absolutely best was <laughs> was taken off the of pool course. and was alternate. And, uh, and so here, let, let me be clear, I have no evidence that that was not the case. But this is why courtroom proceedings are transparent and why you put everything on the record. Uh, Your Honor, he's, he's pointing his pointer finger up toward the ceiling. I mean, we go ad nauseum to put things on the record. And for that aspect to be secret is uh, an artifact of uh, some historical era in, in Boston courts that really needs to change. Insane. You also talked about, Professor, the cameras in the courtroom, and you, you said as an aside that it's a good thing. I, I take it from that you like uh, the proceedings being televised and on TV, because I've, I've had mixed uh, feelings about that from some of the guests. Why, why do you like cameras in the courtroom? Well, I, I do because um, the um, I, I think the public gets a chance to actually see right what really goes on inside the courtroom. Uh, I think in short order, the advocates forget it's there. Uh, so one concern is that people are going to be mugging for the cameras. And you might have a little of that. But serious lawyers, very soon, you, you don't know it's there because you're too focused on 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 the the case but you know to actually see the judge you know yelling at people and yelling at the advocates when the when the jury's gone and then the jury comes back in and the court's always oh how's everybody and you know it's this Jekyll and Hyde thing yeah. uh, i think the public should should should, should see that uh, you know there was just this uh, this tweet going around uh where where uh, someone um where there was a recorded over Zoom arraignment, and uh, this judge got angry because the litigant said "yeah" instead of "yes" and doubled the bail from a thousand to two thousand dollars. I mean, just completely, plainly, wholly unconstitutional. Brutal. I mean, no arguments here, and people need to see this. That this is what goes on in in, in courtrooms. So I so I think net net, it's a it, it is a good thing. You've got issues about privacy and whatnot there. We had it uh, one episode where the uh, camera panned over into the jury box and and then they shut down for like a day or something. But if you work those things out, uh, then everything else will be OK. 
I'm with you. I wish the federal courts would open up a little bit more. Uh, they're starting Agreed. to, but it's 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 really difficult. So jury instructions go to the jurors. 53 pages I saw. I don't know how jurors understand any of this. And the jury is out six days, the worst part of any trial. I mean, you think you've won every day and then they're sitting out six days. You must have been dying. We were, we're like, what in the world are they thinking about there? And uh, yeah, it, that, that, that's just the tough part. And you can't, you just can't function. You just, just, you almost just kind of just sit there. Uh, at least when I, when I was a public defender, I'd have to go to the next courtroom because another trial would be starting and you can kind of get, you get distracted. But here now, you know, when I do one case at a time, you just, you sit and brood. Right. No, it's true. It's the worst part. The longest I've ever had one out is nine days and I, I, I couldn't function either. It was brutal. Um, you know, one of the other weird things about Massachusetts, and I don't know how it was when you were a PD in DC, but I saw that in Massachusetts, the defense closes first, which I had never seen that before. Um, good thing or bad thing for the defense to close first? It, um, you know, I, I think it's about the same. Uh, yeah. So it's the, it's the same norm. The party with the burden goes last. Uh, but uh, the way it works out in most places is prosecution goes, defense goes, and then they have a shorter rebuttal. Right. Uh, either way, once you sit down and you know you can't get back up, it's just the worst to, to listen to, to that. Uh, but I suppose it's pluses and minuses on the plus side. Uh, so we have um, in in the law. I'm, I'm not sure if your audience is all lawyers or, or not. Uh, but Got a we lot have, of them. A lot I'm of sorry. Them. There's a lot of lawyers who listen. Plus love, my mom. Love, love, well, to, to, to your mom, then is your mom a lawyer? No, she's not. Okay. So, 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 mom, uh, we have this this principle about primacy and recency in the law. People remember best what they hear first and what they hear last. So, in the Massachusetts system, we get to stand up first. And um, the notion here is that at least we got to frame the arguments in a certain way and 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 try to bait the government into responding to our arguments. Uh, so that's primacy. Uh, that's a good thing. But then they get to go last and that's recency. So it, uh, you know, six, one half. One of the uh, one of the things that I saw happen in closing for the government, for the state, is they they argued about um, Aaron's tattoos and they made a big deal about the God forgives tattoo. I guess he had a, a, a tattoo that said God forgives. And they said that was a confession. And of course, you got very upset about that, rightfully so, and objected and and went at it with the judge. Um, the judge let them argue that, which seemed very beyond the pale that a tattoo, he had a million tattoos. Right. Um, would that have been a good issue for the appeal if you had lost? Oh, it would have been a great issue yeah. uh, for, for, for the appeal. And that a tattoo was somehow a statement that they can frame as a confession and confession as it, it's a technical word and the whole body of law uh, surrounds this notion of a confession. Uh, yeah, it absolutely would have been a great uh, thing on appeal. Now, we um, we really made fun of that uh, when I crossed uh, uh, his fiance, uh, Shiana, uh, cross in scare quotes because it was the friendliest cross that you've ever seen. But uh, right. but, you know, I you know, I just I came up with and for young lawyers out there, sometimes you can prove positive points by showing the absence of things. And I gave all sorts of examples of things that happened in Aaron's life. 
and asked him, did he get a tattoo about it? And the answer, of course, was no, no, no. When he got signed by the Patriots, he get a tattoo of Bill Belichick on him, no. And then <laughs> you know, were able to argue at the end that, you know, this is not, he's not doing like uh, writing a novel on his arms and backs. They were, they were tattoos. I mean, they, you know, they, sure. he, just got, he was addicted to those tattoos. He had a lot of them, uh, but, you know, they weren't, you know, you couldn't rely on them telling a story about his life. And that just seemed absurd. So, Ron, they're out six days. They come back and it's not guilty. And it's it's so dramatic when you get that verdict. When you, first of all, when you come into the room, that feeling of waiting for the jury to announce it, there's nothing like it. people. Non-lawyers can't understand. There's nothing like that in the world. It's that's right. It's it's just it's it's almost painful. It's and it takes so long uh, to actually get to the the words either guilty or, or or not guilty, and you're literally on pins and needles. Uh, it's it's very difficult. And you win, you get the not guilty. Um, one of the things that I've talked about with other folks is how do you how do you deal with that after? Do you go party? I mean, your client's in, is still in jail. I see how happy he was initially hugging you guys and everything else. What do you and Jose and the whole team do that night? No, Well, n- nothing. We were exhausted uh, <laughs> right. mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted. But you're right. In this kind of case, it was a, uh, a, a definitely a much more subdued win because the client was already uh, in, in prison for, for, for murder. Um, but, you know, we went back to see him. He was extraordinarily happy. He uh, asked us then uh, if we would take over his appeal because uh, he was feeling real good at that point about uh, uh, probably uh, 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 overly uh, 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 ambitious about, uh, uh, about our ability and, and, and the uh, likelihood of winning an appeal. But, you know, he was in that space, asked us if we would do uh, our, his appeal. Um, uh, he talked about going back to football. Uh, and he said, I don't ever forget this. He said, well, maybe not with the Patriots. And I was like, yeah, I think that's, that's fair. <laughs> that's a fair conclusion, Aaron. Um, he said, maybe not with the Patriots, but you know, I'd like to get back into the game. I mean, oh, he man. was really feeling, uh, just this, this, uh, uh, uh sense of hope as he should. Uh, and, um, uh, and then for what happened, you know, a few days later, just really just blindsided me. It, it's amazing, Professor, that that happened a few days later. And you say blindsided. It seemed like it blindsided everybody um, because you had just won and he had hope again. And, and yeah. so it's hard to it's hard to understand, hard to explain what happened. It, it, it's, it's really impossible to explain what, what happened. And uh, to this day, you know, I'm really not. Uh, clear as to what what motivated it. Uh, it'll be one of the mysteries that uh, that you know I will die not having uh, resolved because you're right. He uh, he was very hopeful. Uh, Shiana had just talked to him on the phone. She was coming to see him in a couple of days. I mean, it was uh, uh, you know it, it's just it's a mystery. One of the theories out there in the media and some of these documentaries is that, you know, if he had done that, the first conviction gets abated. And so what abatement is for those who are listening is the if you're not if you're still on direct appeal, the conviction isn't final yet. And so there's this old doctrine called abatement where uh, if you die while you're on appeal, the conviction is, is, is taken away. 
And so people thought maybe he was trying to get his conviction from the first case abated to take care of his family. And then Massachusetts changed the law. Right. Um, and, and so they got rid of the abatement doctrine in Massachusetts. Uh, pretty, pretty stunning change to change a law because of one case like this. Yes. And to make it uh, retroactive, uh, it was uh, quite stunning by the Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, the, the theory, though, is, is clearly false. Um, you know, I can say as his lawyer that uh, it's not as though he had money uh, that was tied up in some way as a function of his uh, uh, conviction. So it's that's just that, that that would not have been a motivation. Uh, Aaron was was broke, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, you know, there was uh, uh, his first conviction being dismissed would not have uh, released any any monies to his family. So um, so, no, that's that's not the case. So as we come to the close here, Professor, I mean, first of all, an incredible victory. It just just to win a case where everybody knows he's been convicted of murder. It, it's unheard of. It's it's unheard of. And so congratulations on on such an amazing win and a, and a teaching tool for your students. I mean, what's the big takeaway from the trial that you can tell folks and tell your students after a case like this? Well, the, 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 the big takeaway is that uh, you approach each trial uh, in the same way. Uh, so don't be defeatist going in, but you've got this method, or at least I teach this method. This is the way you uh, approach the case. And there is no mountain that's too high to uh, surmount. That if you, you do these things, do these things well, do these things faithfully, you've got uh, as good a chance as any to come out uh, vi victorious in the uh, Aaron Hernandez case uh, really, really, really proved that, I think. What an inspiration. You know, one of the reasons I'm doing this is it's, uh, as a guy who tries cases, it's great to get inspired and get reinvigorated for the next trial and hearing stories like this is wonderful. So I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know how busy you are, and this has been a real inspiration for me, and I hope for the listeners as well. My, my, my pleasure. And I'm going to put you on the spot, David. I, I, I hope you'll uh, come join us at TAW one of these years and, uh, and help teach the next generation some trial skills. It'd be my pleasure. I'd love it. And I'd love to come back uh, to the law school, my old home. So anytime, Professor. Thank you. Good talking to you. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much. All right. Bye now. What a treat it was to speak to Professor Sullivan about the Aaron Hernandez case. It's so sad what happened to Hernandez. We'll never know exactly what happened or why it happened. But we do know that when you have great trial lawyers like Professor Sullivan and Jose Baez, anything is possible, even against all odds. They won this case uh, when no one thought they could. And we'll talk more about these very difficult trials, how to win them with some great upcoming guests in For the Defense. I'll see you next Tuesday. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening.